Welcome to the Church and Culture Podcast, a weekly discussion with Dr. James Emery White on the latest trends happening in culture and where and how the church should respond. Jim is the founding and senior pastor of Mecklenburg Community Church in Charlotte, North Carolina, president of Serious Times, a ministry devoted to exploring the intersection of faith and culture, former professor of theology and culture at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, where he also served as their fourth president, and the author of more than 20 books. I am your host, Alexis Dry, and I can't wait to dive into this week's conversation. Hey everybody, thanks for listening this week. Now, even if you're not into comics, you've probably still heard about Comic-Con. This is a convention that gathers together comic book fans from all over the world to really just share their enthusiasm for comics and gaming and comic culture. People dress up, they attend exhibits, they meet other fans, and a lot more happens. But in 2019, the San Diego Comic-Con saw more than 150,000 people come out. Okay, so with that frame of reference, I want you to consider a different type of convention that happened in May. Now, this took place on the opposite side of the nation in Boston. And no, it did not draw 150,000 people, but it did boast about 800 in attendance. People dressed up, they attended lectures and panels, and they bonded over their political interests. If you're curious as to which convention I'm talking about, well, it was none other than SatanCon a convention for modern Satanists hosted by the Satanic Temple. Jim, please tell us what a Satanist is. Well, today, a person who uh, calls themselves a Satanist is um, not someone who necessarily worships Satan, but someone who considers themselves a free thinker, someone who believes in independence and free expression. Uh, Many, at least those who attended SatanCon, Uh, are involved with, as you mentioned, the Satanic Temple, which is a relatively new organization. It was founded back in 2013. Um, And uh, those involved with the Satanic Temple uh, have engaged in pretty high-profile publicity stunts and and publicity campaigns and uh, to do things like encourage um, uh, what seem very benign things, you know, uh, encourage benevolence and empathy, and they would say reject tyrannical uh, authority and advocate practical common sense and uh, oppose injustice and uh, and to uh, undertake noble pursuits. And uh, modern Satanism of this kind is largely an American enterprise phenomenon. Uh, the first church of, of any kind like this, though, actually goes back further. It was founded by a man named Anton LaVey back in 1966, and it was simply called the Satanic or the Church of Satan. Um, you can divide Satanists into two groupings, um, theistic Satanists and atheistic Satanists. Theistic Satanists actually believe in a real devil and in a, in a supernatural being named Satan. Uh, the, they venerate him, not as someone who is evil, but as someone who kind of functions, a supernatural deity who functions as, as something of a patriarch. Um, atheistic Satanists, on the other hand, uh, view Satan more as a symbol and they fully embrace the symbol. I mean, horns and all, I mean, just everything that you would imagine in terms of mythology surrounding what Satan looks like, but they view Satan more as a symbol of certain human traits, uh, but not as a real being. The satanic temple, uh, that we've been talking about, uh, and the organizing force behind SatanCon, uh, now actually has hundreds of thousands of non-theistic members worldwide, uh, but it would be of the atheistic tribe of Satanism. Now, all of this is very different 
than the classic participation in the world of the occult, or what we might even call the traditional participation in the world of the occult that has been with humankind for millennia, uh, such as involvement with witchcraft or divination or some of the more commonly known uh, aspects of it. Uh, and at least for atheistic Satanists, it's different, though, than the direct worship of Satan. So I, I guess I, I want to understand that a little bit better because at SatanCon, you know, the attendees, they many of them dressed at, in masks of Satan. There were certainly themes of hell and fire displayed um, in maybe not so subtle ways. So you said that Satan is considered to be a symbol, but can you talk about that a little bit more? Like, what is that connection? Well, they use satanic imagery to promote certain ideas like egalitarianism or social justice, the separation of church and state. Again, the satanic temple folk don't believe in a supernatural Satan. Uh, what they would say is that they use the literary Satan as a metaphor to promote skepticism and to promote rationality and to promote personal independence. Satan is just the symbol, I mean, the, the symbol of the eternal rebel, as you would, you know, mm -hmm. Uh, against authority and social norms. Gotcha. Okay. So let's talk about a little bit more then about if they don't worship Satan, what do they believe in? You can, you've kind of hinted on a few things, but I'm sure it's a little bit more involved than that. Well, let me, let's start off with the satanic temple um, because they've been very clear about their beliefs. In fact, they, they are often not referred to as a satanic temple. They're sometimes referred to as just seven tenet Satanism because they have seven tenets of belief. Um, and here they are, uh, essentially the, what the seven that they believe that, uh, the first one is that you should strive to act with compassion and empathy toward all creatures, uh, in accordance with reason. Uh, second, they believe in, in that the struggle for justice is an ongoing and necessary pursuit that should prevail over laws and institutions. Third, uh, one's body is inviolable and subject to no one's will alone, to one's own will, I'm sorry, alone. Uh, so you're totally, you know, in charge of your body. Uh, fourth, the freedoms of others should be respected, uh, including the freedom to offend, to willfully and unjustly um, encroach upon the freedom of another is to forego one's own. Uh, fifth, they believe that um, belief should conform to your you know, one's best scientific understandings of the world, and you should take care to never distort scientific facts to fit your beliefs. Mm. Um, six, they, they would say that people are fallible, um, and if one makes a mistake, uh, you should do your best to rectify it and resolve any harm that you may have caused. And then finally, they believe that every tenet is a guiding principle designed to inspire nobility in reason and in thought mm. and in action. Uh, the spirit of compassion and wisdom and justice uh, should always prevail over the written or spoken word. Those seven tenets has played itself out practically in, in any number of ways as they have pursued various political and ideological agendas. They seek to expose what they would call Christian privilege uh, when it interferes in what they would call religious freedom. Uh, because of the inviolability of the body, they view any and all restrictions on abortion as an infringement of their rights. Uh, they fought against any religious installments on public property, and they've attempted to launch Satanist clubs uh, alongside Bible clubs for children. Um, but obviously you can't reduce Satanism to 
the Satanic Temple, there are other figures of note in terms of what Satanists believe and practice. And I'm talking about modern Satanism. Mm -hmm. I mentioned Anton LaVey earlier and the Church of Satan. He was often referred to as the most evil man that ever lived. Uh, he was heavily involved in the pursuit of the paranormal. He performed satanic rituals. He conducted black masses uh, along with satanic baptisms. He baptized, he did a satanic baptism ritual on his own daughter uh, and satanic weddings. He wrote a book, uh, is the Satanic Bible. Um, and so there's, you know, what flows from his side of things. And there's also going back further, there's a man named Alistair Crowley. Uh, who actually who died in 1947. Um, he's an interesting figure. Uh, he, he was an English occultist uh, and has a huge role in pop culture. So did, so did Anton LaVey, but a lot of people are unfamiliar with Crowley's role. Uh, he founded a religion he called Thelema, and he was heavily involved in attempted sorcery and magic and, and what would be termed modern paganism. Uh, he had a much simpler set of beliefs, and it was largely boiled down to one sentence— do what you will. Hmm. Uh, L. Ron Hubbard, and there's some inter interesting interplays here. L. Ron Hubbard, the founder of Scientology, which we did an entire podcast on, and uh, we can link in the show notes, uh, was involved with Thelema and Crowley. Crowley. And many see Crowley's ideas as very influential on Hubbard and Scientology. Hmm. Uh, Jimmy Page of Led Zeppelin fame has been tied to the occult. And he had the phrase, do what you will, inscribed on the vinyl of their third album. Uh, Page also bought Crowley's home and part of the band's film, The Song Remains the Same, was filmed on its grounds. Uh, there's been speculation that David Bowie's song, Let's Dance, was built off an, a Crowley poem. And of course, Ozzy Osbourne uh, of Black Sabbath, but as a, as a, a solo artist, famously recorded a song that was titled Mr. Crowley. Hmm. And it made reference to how he was waiting on Satan's call and talking to the dead. Uh, Crowley denied being a Satan worshiper, but like other Satanists, he used Satanic imagery and embraced much of the world of the occult. I would put him more into the theistic side, even if he, because he was really pursuing it as something, not just as an intellectual kind of set of things, but he was actually involved in attempts at black magic, or uh, what's often known as that. So you can see it's a tangled mess, mm -hmm. all things Satanism. You have some who embrace Satanic imagery ideologically and others who fully embrace a Satan-infused practice of the world of the occult. Now, what's tricky about those seven tenets that you walked us through is that you know, most people wouldn't disagree with all of them. I mean, the concern for justice and equality, even I mean, the fact that they own up to the fact that humankind is, is fallible. I mean, that's all I feel like congruent with my faith as a Christian. And yet the differences are really important. Can you expound on those a little bit more? Yeah, the Satanism that we're talking about of, for example, the Satanic Temple, I mean, let's just go ahead and call it what it is. There's, a, there's another name for it. It's secular humanism. Mm -hmm. That's what it is. Yeah. Uh, secular humanism was uh, generally defined or is generally defined as the idea that humanity does not answer to any higher power, no higher authority than humanity itself. Uh, I am my own God. And, and this is this is worth chasing a bit. The slogan of the American Humanist Association is good without a God, which is exactly what those tenets are, trying to have goodness without a God. And they created a national day of reason to counter the national day of prayer. But this is a new and profound break that we, we need to own with Western thought and culture and certainly with the Christian faith. 
even among those cultures that might be termed pagan, true secularity in this sense was not known. Whether it was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or the gods of Greece and Rome, there were gods. There, there, was, there was something outside of ourselves uh, beyond which that we would look to in terms of how we lived. It would have been alien to anyone's thinking to begin with themselves alone and feel like they could arrive at truth and morality. But that's exactly what secular humanism is about and what Satanism is about, because it is a secular humanist worldview. Um, and the seedbed of this, of course, is all rooted in the Enlightenment. It, it, it's not anything new in that sense. Uh, Henry May uh, uh, captured the essence of the Enlightenment, of the message of the Enlightenment, at least I think best, in two propositions. He said, first, that the present age is more enlightened than the past. That was the first idea of the Enlightenment. Second, that we understand nature and man best through the use of natural faculties, uh, natural reason. The Enlightenment Project, if you ever heard that phrase, the Enlightenment Project, uh, was the um, rejection of revelation and tradition or divine illumination as the surest guide for all human beings. Indeed, autonomous reason was to reign supreme. The model of Immanuel Kant, if you've read him, uh, one of the great Enlightenment thinkers, um, and he was brilliant, but um, he, he had a phrase in Latin that is best translated, dare to know um, or dare to use your own reason. Um, and the word dare was significant for Kant and many Enlightenment thinkers, because the idea was that if you did dare to know, dare to use your own reason, then that would inevitably have you come up against traditional authorities, namely the church. That was the, that was why you, it was a dare to use your reason because you'd be taking on the church. And, but that was exactly the point. Mm. Uh, there could be no authority over the exercise or the conclusions of reason. This idea of authority really is critical to understand because for the Enlightenment, it was a rebellion against one source of authority, that of the church and its appeal to God and revelation, and the enthronement of another authority, which was human reason. Uh, so you had someone like the French philosopher Voltaire, uh, and he, he said that the whole goal of the Enlightenment was emancipation from being, from just submission to heaven. You know, we're not going to submit to heaven. We're going to submit to our own reasons. We're our own gods. The fundamental idea is that we could begin with ourselves and gain the sense by which to judge all things. And not only that we could, but that we should, um, I actually talk a bit about this in my new book, Hybrid Church, in, in the whole chapter where I'm where I'm making the case we now live in a post-Christian digital world. I take time at the beginning, you know, say, okay, well, what do we mean by post-Christian and how did we get here? And um, and uh, and this is, but the speed by which Enlightenment thinking took hold was just breathtaking. I mean, it really was, by uh, in terms of where we are today. But by the end of that era alone, I mean, the church had been marginalized. Theology had been dethroned as the queen of the sciences and the Christian worldview was becoming a, a faded memory. So if the medieval outcome of an, of, um, of an entrenched Christian worldview was Christendom, the enlightenment outcome of the newly entrenched secular humanism was humandom. So it went from Christendom to, to humandom, if you would. Um, that really is at the heart of modern atheistic Satanism, and is obviously a complete anti-God state of mind. Hmm. Well, then, as we kind of think about the people who are drawn to Satanism, and here, I don't want to paint with too broad of a brush, because I know, as you said, like, there are, there are a lot of, of people who would, um, they're, they're increasingly more Satanists, or which, which, whether you're in the theistic or um, atheistic camps, but it does appear just 
and just some preliminary research that I did and just reading several articles and whatnot that many of the followers, at least of the, of the, the modern expression of this movement, do seem to have similar backstories. And unfortunately, I'm talking about people who have experienced harassment or ostracization, bullying, physical harm. And, um, and so specifically, you know, as a result of their beliefs or their gender identity or some other minority status that they might have. And so knowing that, that helps me to understand then kind of where these tenets of Satanism come from. That seems like a natural reaction to that type of backstory. But what else do you notice about the people who are drawn to this? Well, you know, I, I, you, you want to be careful because you don't want to sound condescending. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, you poor tortured soul, you know, the, that, that, that led you to this or something like that, where they would say, uh, no, thank you. I'm quite fine. Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 take offense that you would look at them that way. But having said that, <laughs> um, it it is very similar to our conversation on cults and and conspiracy theories that we recently had. People are longing for community, and I think that you you hit it on the nail. And it's not a condescending thing. If if you are feel an outcast, if you don't feel like you fit in anywhere, and then you find a place where you kind of do fit in or you are accepted, then. That's that's very alluring. That's seductive. That's attractive. Yeah. And I think that that's what you have here. People longing for community and identity. And this gives it to them. I, I was reading one article. I think that we both read on uh, on the Satanic Temple and I interviewed a young woman who had become a part of it. And I, I remember she said things like um, she she was wanting to find ways to express her individual identity and to build a community after she graduated from college. Mm-hmm. Uh, she wanted a community where she felt like she could belong in and, and she felt like she had found it with Satanists and it had become, and this, these are her words. She says it had become her family. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a, a huge draw for people is this sense of community and, and family. And, and, um, you know, if you, if you, you know, you're, you're going to take it where you can get it in many ways. Um, uh, but I'm, I'm going to go further. I'm going to risk something else. I think that one of the reasons why these people, some of these people are drawn to it and have been ostracized or don't feel like a part of something like a, a church or other you know, things like that, why they have fled from that and they're drawn to this is because the lifestyle choices that they've chosen, the, the ideologies and, that they've chosen, um, is that they're drawn to anything that's going to be completely devoid of judgment. Yeah completely devoid of any type of outside transcendent authority, any sense of that would uh, speak into their life that the choices they've made are somehow wrong or immoral. And so in truth, they're drawn to a lack of morality. Um, and, and, you know, and that's exactly what you find in Satanism. You know, it, it, you know do what you will. Mm-hmm. You know, that, follow your impulses. Do whatever you want to do, and it's fine. And so that's... And if that's been kind of what's been guiding your life or what you want to pursue in life, well, then you're going to be drawn to this. Mm. Well, in case any of our listeners are thinking that this is just some kind of fringe movement, probably not worth the discussion, I was really interested that a friend forwarded me an article recently about Target's recent contract with, I don't know if I'm saying this company's name right, but Abprolin. It's a clothing brand that sells Satanist merchandise, and particularly in support of LGBTQ pride. Um, to be clear, Target is not, as I don't think, selling any of their merchandise that emphasizes Satan, but 
I mean, it doesn't take a genius to figure out how to trace the threads over there um, to their website where you will find a lot more overt references to Satan and merchandise that advocates violence as a response to bigotry. So, I mean, this isn't this isn't like a small issue. What do you make of that partnership? Well, I'll tell you what I think about it at the end. Okay. Um, but it has been in the news of late, hasn't yes. it? Mm-hmm. Um, and Target received and is receiving quite the backlash as, as we are talking. This is a live thing, um, akin to the backlash against Bud Light uh, and their use of a trans spokesperson. Uh, and so Target pulled back, mm-hmm. um, at least in terms of where they were going to place the merchandise. They're going to place the merchandise right at the front of the store where kids couldn't miss it and and all this kind of stuff. And now it's apparently, from last I read, it's going to be moved from the front of the store to the back of the store, but they're not pulling it entirely, but maybe by the end of the backlash continues, they might, but they may move the product placement. The clothing line that this company uh, produces is is blatantly Satanist, as you mentioned, and it even glorifies violence. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, that, as you mentioned, that, that slice of what they produce is not going to be on sale at target, but the, all of the pro LGBTQ items that uh, from them will be. And so they are supporting the Satanist company and they're working with this this company that produces Satanist merchandise um, and they're using it for their Gay Pride Month and and, um, and LGBTQ products. Uh, but their line includes things when you go to their line, like Satan uh, respects pronouns and then a Satanist goat head. Uh, they fall back and quickly say that they don't believe in the real Satan. They're, they would say, well, we're, athe- we're atheistic Satanists. They would put themselves in that camp. But they also say, very interestingly, on, on the company website, they say that while we don't believe in a real Satan, but we also feel like that he means to you what you need him to mean. Hmm. Uh, in an Instagram, the company said things like, Satan loves you and respects who you are. And if you are going against God's will, fine, we'll hang with Satan instead. So how does that make me feel about Target? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I just find that partnership that Target has with them um, abhorrent. Mm -hmm. Now, if I were a parent, well, I am a parent, but if I were a parent of a teenager or someone who works in, I don't know, youth ministry or college ministry, I feel like I'd want to have this on my radar. Not that Satanists aren't older, but I mean, they're not promoting these shirts to to our grandmothers, right? Like this is this drawing younger generations. And so while there is, as we mentioned, some truth or some overlap, very maybe minimal in some Satanist beliefs, at least some of those tenets that you mentioned, the truth is distorted by this untruthful worldview of secular humanism. So how can parents, if it's so confusing for you know f- people who are trying to navigate it on their own, how can parents help their children understand this difference? Yeah, I think I've covered the philosophical divide when I talked about secular humanism, but let's talk about the occultic side itself because, you know, I, and they can say all day long that they're not really Satan worshipers or, or not really believers in all of this, but everything they say and do and wear and exhibit and put forward drips with images and words taken from the world of occult and black masses and Satan worship. And so let's let's talk about that, because I, I'm I think I mean, you've heard me say this before in private conversations and in other settings that I am I am deeply concerned at how confused Christians are about 
the world of the occult and what is part of the world of the occult and what is not. Uh, too many Christians are just are just really, and, and again, I don't mean this in a condescending way, but they're biblically and theologically, um, uh, I'm going to use the word ignorant. Hmm. And, and, and I don't, and again, I, I don't know that it's their fault. They just haven't been, it's not being taught in churches. Uh, I mean, okay, they might get a goat's head and a pentagram, but they seem completely divorced from understanding what else is part of the occultic world. Okay, so let's talk, let's, let me, let me, let's, let's, let me chase that. The word occult is, is a word that simply means hidden or secret. Uh, beyond the range of ordinary human knowledge uh, or below the surface of normal life. Used in that sense, it's obviously almost a neutral term, but it's become used as a reference to those um, practices that link up intentionally or not with the hidden or secret world of Satan and his demons. That is not neutral uh, because it involves engaging the forces of darkness. And when we do that, we are willfully opening up our the door of our life to their presence and their activity. And nothing could be more dangerous. Nothing. Um, now I don't believe Christians can be demon-possessed, but they can be demon-oppressed. Mm -hmm. And certainly non-Christians uh, open up the door and there's nothing protecting them whatsoever. Uh, so what are the marks of engaging with anything occultic? And, and throughout the Bible, throughout the pages of Scripture, anything related to the occult, if, if the Bible says anything, it's run. <laughs> You have nothing to do with it. Have nothing. You have no idea what you're messing with and what you're inviting into your life. So, so what are the marks of anything occultic? Well, there are three, um, and we need to get these down. And I'm going to name some names so that you know exactly what I'm talking about. The first characteristic of all things occultic is the disclosure of communication, uh, or communication, uh, the disclosure or communication of information unavailable to humans through normal sense. Mm -hmm. To, to, through normal means. Now, this would involve things like horoscopes, uh, fortune telling, psychic hotlines, and tarot cards, mm -hmm. all for the occult. The knowledge comes from somewhere. And if it's not from God through the sources that God has ordained, then it's through the evil one and his forces. If you're engaging the supernatural, if you're engaging anything like that, there's only two you know, worlds. And um, this would be the world of the occult. There's no power just kind of floating around out there that just exists, you know, and neutral and impersonal. Nothing uh, that has a voice or that can be tapped into. There's not some kind of cosmic consciousness for secret knowledge about the future of a human life. Everything falls under heaven or hell, good or evil, God or the evil one. A second mark of something being occultic has to do with the, the placing of persons in contact with supernatural powers paranormal energies or demonic forces. This world would involve things like uh, attempting to summon up a spirit uh, or a deceased relative through a seance or channeling a spirit or procuring the services of someone claiming to be a medium. The third mark of the world of the occult is the any attempt to gain and master paranormal power in order to manipulate or influence other people into certain actions. This would involve all forms of witchcraft and the casting of spells, including all things Wicca. Now, you know, it's, it's so interesting to me that Christians will get, you know, all in an uproar over something like Harry Potter. 
and then rush to their horoscope or go to a seance or look at tarot cards or 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 whatever and i i just i don't i don't get it like that's the occult i mean get harry potter or the magic of snow white or the lord of the rings or the magic in the chronicles of narnia out of your head um that's not what this is about the magic of children's fiction is largely mechanical it's not occultic uh no more than the magical powers of superman <laughs> Um, and it's attempting to be fantasy, not reality. There's absolutely no contact with the supernatural world in the classical form of the occult, if you've studied that. In truth, they're simply morality tales, and the magic is used as a metaphor for power. Uh, and as you know, many of the writers uh, were Christians. Um, Tolkien with Lord of the Rings, mm -hmm. Lewis for uh, Chronicles of Narnia, and uh, uh, Rowling was Christian uh, as well. In fact, she even patterned her seven books of Harry Potter after the seven Chronicles of Narnia. A lot of people don't know this. But um, and uh, but in actual witchcraft, it's different. Um, it's it's not mechanical at all. It's calling on demons. Uh, and again, today it's being mainstreamed through all things Wicca. So what I would say is understand the philosophical divide uh, and with the nature of secular humanism, which is a complete anti-God state of mind. And then also understand really what we're talking about with the world of the occult and when you're dabbling with that. And, and those two things alone are, are critical for to get across to people as clearly as we mm. possibly can. Yeah. Well, I don't doubt that this will be the last time that we have a conversation like this, because as we've talked about, I think offline before, like Satan is, he's got endless ideas in terms of how to, I don't know, manifest himself or take advantage of different situations. And so I feel like we're just going to have this conversation over well, and over and, again. Isn't it interesting? Isn't it interesting? Atheistic Satanism, isn't it interesting? That his 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 main strategy has always been deception and 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 also to hide himself, mm -hmm. like he he really doesn't want to be necessarily seen. And but what a wonderful way to surface and say, okay, I'm going to surface and get everything across I want, everything across I want, and yet still kind of have it couched as if there's not a supernatural being behind it all. Right, just to I mean, kind of make it playful, yeah. Mm -hmm, absolutely. So, well, thank you for um, explaining this to us. Like I said, I think this is going to be like a lot of new information. I have so many follow-up questions for you after this podcast, but we can talk offline. Um, but yeah, thank you for unpacking this. And guys, thank you for listening. We hope you'll tune in again next week.